Tuesday morning blitz. Kale and I are back from the spring break, and we are in our well, like seventh new recording environment of the year. It's a crazy time. It's already been a crazy day. This is how we know it's going to be a great podcast because we've been trying to start recording for over an hour already, and now we are. Kale, how was your spring break? Spring break was good, mostly filled with work. I'm still shocked that the podcast studios in Syracuse. Uh, don't have Adobe Audition installed on them. They apparently deleted <laughs> Adobe Audition from all of them. So now we have come to my room in, I'm not going to tell you where it is, in beautiful Syracuse. First time we've been here as a collective recording, of course, on the beautiful Snowball microphone. Not a free ad, but maybe one day they want to pay me. Let's talk about NFL free agency because, Kale, it was a bonkers week from a football perspective. You said last week, ah, maybe we'll see like how the dust settles, uh, who knows what's going to happen, and then breaking news after breaking news after surprise move. Honestly, thus far, this is maybe the most memorable free agency or start to an NFL offseason that I've ever personally experienced. And I thought that, you know, the year that Rivers moved and the year that Breeze was almost going to move in the year that Tom Brady left New England. I thought that was going to be chaotic. This is on another level entirely. Yeah, and I want to give us credit for this because the five of you or so that tuned into that insane long, uh, just great live stream we had over Thanksgiving break. Glad we did that. We should do that again even if no one listens. We just we laid it all out there and said this was going to be a crazy offseason for quarterback movement in the NFL we didn't even in our wildest dreams come close to guessing how crazy it was going to end up becoming. We have guys getting jobs that we thought would never start in the league again. We have quarterbacks I think we both think are at least starters in the NFL who are still looking for a job. And maybe a third of the league has changed the face of its franchise at the quarterback position so far. I mean, we'll get into it, but I can't remember anything ever like this, especially at that position. And we haven't even gotten into quarterbacks we think might start as rookies coming out of the draft like and before that's even happened I think I, if you ask me to name it's going to be bad podcasting so I won't push it if you ask me to name every quarterback move that's happened thus far I don't think I'd be able to name all of them off the top of my head yeah I mean I've got them written down so that's a little bit of a cheater move on my part but yeah I mean well we're not counting like the Chase Daniel moves, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe Chase Daniel ends up taking, no, we're over, for a, <laughs> taking over for a broken down Justin Herbert in Week Six and leading a championship charge. But who I think knows? you never know. It's it's the beauty of football. You don't know. Uh, what we do know is that it's been crazy. We're going to get into our off season. Well, the off season is barely close to ending, but early free agency winners and losers very soon. But. The biggest news around the league this week that I think we need to address right off the top, after a drawn-out saga that I don't think any of us saw really coming to the extent that it did, Deshaun Watson ends up essentially jockeying for a position among four teams, playing them against each other, seeing what he likes the best from an offer, appears to rule out the Cleveland Browns and be down to the Falcons and Saints. On Thursday, he completely reverses course, decides he is going to be a Cleveland Brown, 
Not only that, but he gets a five-year, $230 million contract extension. Year one, he will be paid $1 million because there is an apparent, well, there is the pretty high odds that he's going to be suspended for this year, and the Browns are fully aware, and all $230 million of that money is guaranteed. Kale, I know this is a very heavy issue, given the nature of the charges that Deshaun Watson is slash has faced, but... We do have to talk about it because it is one of the biggest quarterback names in the league going to a new team, and he's obviously very good when he's on the football field, but what was your initial reaction when you saw the Browns made this signing? It's, I get, and first off, we can, we're going to try our best to, we, we want to focus on the issues and we want to talk about, you know, the 22 victim, victims that are currently accusing Deshaun Watson of, uh, a range of sexual assault to sexual misconduct. Uh, people are going to do a better job than that one, than we are. I highly recommend you guys listen to uh, me and Economist podcast with Sports Illustrated's Jenny Varentis, who's covered this case very extensively. Uh, I believe the Athletics also done stuff with her. If you want to hear a mix of uh, reporters' reactions with an actual news analysis, uh, the Ringers' most recent podcast on the issue did a fantastic job of covering the topic and balancing both. Uh, in terms of initial reaction, I think the toughest part for me comes in the little details of it. The fact that the $1 million first year guaranteed money, or the $1 million base salary uh, is done specifically to avoid this sort of suspension that they know is looming. It's the fact that Jimmy Haslam with the Cleveland Browns put out a statement, I believe, saying uh, basically, they talked to Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson said it's good, so they're good. Uh, the fact that this is really like solely a football move. It, it's it, listen, Deshaun Watson when he last played was a top five, top three quarterback in football, and I recognize that. But uh, even even if you take the off field stuff out of the equation, he wasn't a great guy on field in terms of the fact that at least from a team perspective where. He held out to get a contract extension, got that contract extension, and then held out again in order to receive a trade. He's a headache to deal with from a management perspective, it seems like, uh, and that all came about before 22 women accused him of sexual misconduct. I, it, it's the, you know, the NFL's a, dirty game it's tough to cover sometimes it's really rough to see you know sexual predators and domestic abusers get limelight I had this same feeling when watching Big Ben hearing those stories uh, from earlier years and the Ray Rice issue it, like just across the league it's really tough to root for uh, some of the people that really aren't great and sometimes you know teams take precedent over football skill then character and things like it. We'll continue to talk about him going forward in terms of the grand scope of football, uh, but you know that at the end of the day, like it's always going to be sitting in the back of our minds. Like he lost the, you know, he got acquitted essentially in a criminal court, but he's, you know, I, it's going to be impossible to win back the court of public opinion, at least in my eyes. And let's be clear, it's really hard to prove 
sexual misconduct, sexual assault cases in criminal court. That's been established for a long, long time. And the idea that he's been acquitted because a grand jury failed to indict him, which again was kind of a weird situation to begin with because grand juries are usually just a formality to indict to begin with. Regardless, it was always unlikely that he was going to be criminally found guilty of anything. So the fact that now all of a sudden this one step in the legal process has shifted everything in terms of him being signable, him being tradable, uh, teams now assuming that he's going to be able to play for them at some point is hard to wrap my head around. And I agree with you that this is never going to be easy to talk about. Uh, We're going to do our best not to ignore it, first of all, because, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is those 22 women and how they must be feeling through all this. At the same time, it's going to heavily impact the landscape of the league for the foreseeable future. The Browns look like a much better football team on paper than they did before. And at every turn, if the Browns win or lose a football game, we're going to be thinking about who's playing quarterback for them. So I I don't know how I'd wrap my head around that as a fan of the team. I've seen a very wide range of reactions, people saying they don't want to support the team anymore, or in the case of LeBron James on Twitter, just celebrating the move, saying LFG and let's move on. I I don't know where I would come down, but I certainly am not in the LFG let's move on camp because this is a very just, it's depressing to talk about when you think about the magnitude of what he, we talked about him losing in the court of public opinion. We don't want to get into the credibility of accusations, but we're not just going to say he's innocent and let's move on. This is going to be an ongoing thing we have to deal with for a long time. There are many other things that happened in the NFL this week. From a movement perspective, we're going to get into our free agency, early free agency winners and losers. Kale, lead us off. Who is your first winner? Listen, you know it had to. You know this. the second all these moves got made, you know I was going to be talking about them. It's the LA Chargers, baby. I, I, I mean... I mean, how could you not? Like, starting off the Khalil Mack trade. Massive move. Uh, Not only does that put one of the best edge rushers in the league alongside Joey Bosa, who's also one of the best edge rushers in the league, Khalil Mack's fantastic on run defense, and that addresses the Chargers' biggest issue already. Then you look at the free agency moves that these guys have made. Picking up J.C. Jackson to a five-year contract, uh, you know, immediately getting that cornerback one in the building, moving everyone else down the depth chart, addressing a m- not even massive need, but something that is necessary to compete in a conference that now has Patrick Mahomes, Derek Carr, and Devontae Adams, and Russell Wilson playing in Denver. It's the perfect fit for them. They're hopefully going to play a little bit more man. It's going to work in the Brandon Staley system. Speaking of the Brandon Staley system, Sebastian Joseph Day coming right over from L.A., Fitting right back in with his former DC, um, you know, perfect for to address the additional run defense issues that they've been having. I think they could still even go deeper if Jordan Davis falls to them in the draft at seventeen. But I, I mean, I love every single one of these moves that they've made. I also love, I mean, even Mike Williams to a three-year, sixty million dollar deal. This, it's maybe a deal that's rich in the sense that, yeah, they might value Mike Williams a little bit more than the rest of the league at this moment, but he's the exact wide receiver too that this team needs. He, he can do a little bit of it all. He's the perfect fit in this offense, and they need to keep supporting Justin Herbert weapons. Now you go from a couple different holes to basically only needing a right tackle, and you're good. The Chargers have done everything right, and we've talked about that all throughout the offseason. 
Since we last went live, J.C. Jackson was the move that I think in both of our minds really tied their offseason together. I will continue saying it until the end of time. The Chargers seem to win a lot of offseasons. We know they have the right quarterback in the building now, so that's kind of off the table, but there just has to be a year where it finally all comes together for them. And this looks like it, but we know how tough that division is going to be. We know what the Chargers' recent past looks like. Let's see it all play out. I'm excited. I'm, the Chargers are going to be one of the teams that we, of course, follow the most closely all year, given Kale's strong emotional investment in this football team. And I'm just so curious. I've never been so... like I feel like more outcomes are on the table for this Chargers team than almost any team we've talked about in the past, certainly this year. So can't wait for the 2022 Chargers to finally take the field. The one thing that makes me the most excited for it is the fact that this was a fantastic offense already last season and even though a bunch of different offenses got better uh, whether it's all the quarterbacks that have flooded the AFC uh, Georgia's aren't going to have an easy like as easy schedule Denver's going to have the easiest schedule of those four but Chargers are going to have the third slot they came third in the AFC West so they're going to have a decent road but my favorite thing is that they address this defense is that they look intimidated now they look fantastic I, I mean between Derwin James JC Jackson Sante Samuel Jr. Khalil Mack Joey Bosha and Sebastian Joseph Day belongs in that conversation as well maybe not as a top-end player at his respective position but he's a, you know a very strong talent there it just it's going to be the perfect counterpunch with a really strong defensive mind like Brandon Staley it's just the perfect setup you, you know they've already got enough skill to match on the offensive end now adding that defensive front to it, they're really intimidating. Well, we'll see, because we had this conversation throughout the season about their defense being very top-heavy. So there's a couple more names now added to that top tier of the defense. Top tier names, too. I mean, Khalil Mack is obviously nothing to sneeze at, but further down the depth chart, and this is where you start to get into you know, some of those guys at the back end of the secondary, some of those guys in the linebacking core, it's going to be interesting to see if that defense can really catapult itself into the top half. Because this year they were very much bottom half, particularly when you could run anything down their throat at any time. So do you have to be a great defense to win with Justin Herbert? Probably not, but I definitely think there needs to be, need to be a, a, good one. a very solid one, especially when you look at what happened in that division this offseason, which we'll continue to talk about. Uh, let's, let's do my first winner. It's going to be a pivot out of the division, but sticking to... Teams that added in a big way. How about the Indianapolis Colts? And this is just really one transaction, right? This is, they get rid of Carson Wentz. Now they bring in Matt Ryan to play quarterback. And they profit. They profit. How is this even possible? You trade Carson Wentz for a swap of second round picks and two thirds. So, and and one of those thirds converts to a second, assuming Carson Wentz plays 70% of snaps this year. Then they go get Matt Ryan for just a third. So let's think about that. You are acquiring Matt Ryan and most likely a second-round pick for Carson Wentz. That's absurd. How, like, props to, I mean, Indianapolis, embarrassment of riches. They need to teach all sorts of negotiating classes out of that front office this offseason. Winners all around in my book. I'm still a little hesitant on the fact that they've made... Yeah, they've really only brought in their own guys on defense, and despite all this cap moving, they've got a lot of their own. Like, it really helps all, to have all the cap space to take on Matt Ryan's money, 
but now they have the ability to actually really dig into this day two system and really try and pick up a couple more guys. I think they're now a big candidate to get on this wide receiver rush in the draft. Uh, they've still got, you know, there's still a couple more guys out there if they think they can find Will Fuller a home for a year and make him, a, you know, another one-year rental for something, about, like a special run that they're going to make. But, I mean, the uh, this is, it, it's a, I, I think they immediately jumped into the favorites of the AFC South. But Titans did trade for Robert Woods, and that's adding a lot more depth to their receiving room than they've ever had. But, you know. Moves like signing Harold Landry to a five-year, $87.5 million extension. Little Ridge for my blood, they're losing out on the ability to actually make some moves for other free agents and really improve on this defense like they probably should be at this point. I think the Titans have a lot of holes, and they're going to take a step back. And Indy, who has a very stable roster, yeah, they're short on a couple receivers, but now that they've got an actual quarterback and throw to them and actually accentuate their talents... I think they shoot up these boards as in a wide receiver rich draft. Yeah, they have the perfect, you know, they have the perfect opportunity to supplement their roster with good receiving talent at a budget, like at a really low rate. I think that's going to be the. Oh, they don't have a first. Oh, they don't have a first. <laughs> the Carson Wentz trade. Forgot about that one, <laughs> but you know, Sky Moore in the second. Who says no? Yeah, and there's you know, you can. You can parlay. I, I'm surprised. I'm a little surprised they weren't in on some of the cheaper wide receivers. Maybe they were and just didn't get any of them. But I get they needed like, that third to trade for Matt Ryan, but you know they could have given it to uh, the Rams for Robert Woods' deal. Who's it's apparently they could have given him a fifth for Robert yeah, Woods. They could have given him like you know. Or Isaiah McKenzie was out there signable for four million dollars a year. I didn't see them going after him. There's still guys out there they can use to supplement. But, I, I mean, the Matt Ryan move first and foremost, it, it, you know, it's the same thing with my logic with picking Denver as an honorable mention winner. You know, if you get your quarterback, that's really all you need. Yeah, and that's all this pick is about. Indianapolis, strong upgraded quarterback. We knew they had a great roster already. It's not like they're losing. Like, are we really upset about the loss of T.Y. Hilton potentially at the wide receiver position? I think it's more about we just don't think you, you need either uh, – like a kind of a secondary one or a strong two uh, to complement Michael Pittman. That's that's really what we're looking for here to fill out this offense. It may not even matter when you, if you get Jonathan Taylor back healthy for another full season. All you need at that point is competence at the wide receiver position, and I think you definitely are the favorites in the AFC South. Yeah, maybe also just sign you know Xavier Rhodes to a short-term deal or something like that. Like I was going to ask about him. Like, Do we think he's signable for them? Because there are obviously other teams that would – appreciate someone of his caliber even at you know moving into his 30s now he's still he's been one of the best corners in the game when he's been you know at the top of his game I mean the thing is at their cap number yeah like they've still got a lot of they've got a lot of room left over to actually make these moves I I think they've got it you know seems like right now they got another 17 mil you only need uh, I think you only need like two mil to sign all your draft picks Shouldn't be too much. Uh, you'll be fine. Like, you can actually absolutely send them a, you know, bit of a low-baller deal, depending on what the market is for corners at this moment. It seems very deflated, honestly, uh, just from, you know, J.C. Jackson's on for sub-20 million when we all thought he was going to be a $20 million man. Uh, if that's not resetting market, it wasn't even resetting market, but if that's not going to be the move, like, it seems like this cornerback market's been very, very appreciated. If you could pick up Xavier, Wood, or Xavier Rhodes and just convince him to come home, I think it should be fun. 
Yeah, I mean, pick up Xavier Woods, too. Why not? Just, mm. do, just do everything. Um, Kale, let's get to your first loser of free agency. Time to throw some shade. Yeah, it's New England. Duh. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I mean, we talked about how good the, uh, the pickup of J.C. Jackson by the L.A. Chargers is. I don't really understand why they let him walk. Uh, I, I don't mind. Uh, I mean, the New England Patriots have done the absolute bare minimum in the sense that they've picked up a bunch of their... Uh, you know, household names. They're long the, tenured guys. Yeah, the the guys that have really made their organization strong for the last couple of years. Devin McCourty, Matthew Slater, James White, on all very reasonable deals. The McCourty the McCourty signing actually saved New England. I think like a mill on the cap. J C Jackson, uh, James White for you know the two mil per year he's getting signed to. That's a perfect deal in my opinion. Like perfect balance of that. I just have questions with what the rest of New England's situation is because for example, they trade Mac Wilson for Chase Winovich straight up. And it seems like oh, now they're going away from these bruiser linebackers and they're getting into smaller rangier guys. The antithesis of what New England has relied on for years and years. But then they also go out and they sign Juwan Bentley to another two year $9 million deal that absolutely doesn't fit with what kind of play style that they were leaning towards. Uh, they lose Ted Karras in free agency, but they've got David Andrews in the fold. They, for some reason, trade they trade Shaq Mason to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a fifth-round pick, potential all-pro guard, a top-five guard in football, and they get a day-three pick back for him. They, I don't know if... I don't know if Jason Light had him bent over a barrel or something where it was just all like all Belichick could afford, but you need to get more than a fifth for him. Uh, he had one of the most reasonable contracts for a guard in football, incredibly, incredibly manageable, and they got a fifth for him. Uh, you know, and then they re-sign Trent Brown to a two-year deal, which you know fills up one of those holes, and you can have Michael Onwenu step in at guard for Shaq Mason, but I, I, I just don't get the whole direction of this team right now. In a, in a conference where, what, the, the New England Patriots were a 5-6 seed last year? Six. Six. And how many teams have now jumped them in talent alone right now? I'd say four, four five. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> you know. It's tough. I, I, what, what it does set up is a great opportunity for 2023 where – Patriots will have a ton of cap space to, you know, make some savvy moves. Uh, they'll have potentially a new receiver in the building. They'll have new opportunities. A bunch of these contracts from last year are going to be off the book. And Mac Jones will be another year developed, and it'll be a prime time to strike. And and a lot of these other teams will now be more cap hamstrung, and it'll be more difficult for them to manage these rosters, and that might be a prime time to strike. A lot of teams feel like, they are going in for this year and this year alone because of where the cap is right now, where certain quarterback deals line up. If New England's, you know, biding their time, doesn't feel like the best move because, you know, Belichick is 70, and he's also wearing every hat in the organization currently <laughs> because he's taking over offensive playing calls. He's already the GM and head coach and DC. He's basically the entire source of their, the, you know, their scouting, their scouting office. In New England is now like five guys. Like it's one of the smallest in the league, and it's mostly Belichick doing it himself. They've lost all this personnel from you know 
Josh McDaniels picking them clean and, you know, old guard retiring. It's they're really starting to get bare bones here. And it's they've done nothing to really capitalize on this window that they have with a young Mac Jones. I don't know. I, well, first of all, I think we should acknowledge that Patriots fans, and we're two of them, so we are qualified to speak on the subject, are spoiled. We, of course. Granted. <laughs> we, we have known nothing but success, and the prospect that there may not be a strong direction for the future is irksome because we don't know what that feels like. That yeah. being said... When you let top three cornerbacks yeah. walk, when you're not getting proper returns on skilled players... Like, you can look at a thing objectively and recognize, like, no, this is a bad plan and a directionless ship. At this and point. it gets worse when you consider just how crazy the depth is in the AFC right now. Because, I mean, you talk about it. Denver's going to be better this year. Baltimore's going to be better this year. The Chargers are obviously, I mean, there's almost nowhere to go but up from the Chargers with how much talent they had and the fact they didn't even make the playoffs. So... And there's a lot of other young quarterbacks who are exciting in this conference. You look all around. Basically, the only teams that don't have a strong direction at the quarterback position, or at least an idea of it, are Pittsburgh and Houston in the AFC. So Davis Mills, dude. What are you talking about? (laughs) I'm not not there yet with young Davis Mills. As a Stanford guy, I'm not there yet, but we'll see. I don't know, man. I'm really concerned because I don't think that – I mean, I'm not too deep into what next year's free agent class looks like, and maybe there are trades you can pull uh, with the amount of salary you'll be able to take on next offseason, but I see a lot of positions of need, and I don't see a lot of guys who are going to be in the picture for the Pats next year. So we could talk all we want about building for the future, but from a playoff team in 2021, you'd like to be in a position to win now, and I'm not sure that they are. I just don't know if they want to compete right now. And that might, like, I'm not saying that Bill Belichick just want to punt, but I believe his name is Miguel Benzon on Twitter, at Pat's Cap. Uh, does a fantastic job covering the New England Patriots cap scenario. And at the end of February, beginning of March, he released his plan of every possible move that they could do to free up cap. Uh, it was upwards of $66 million they could free up. And he also released a 12-step plan of how they could free up additional cap, and I, I think that one was much more reasonable. Uh, had no involvement with void years or anything like that, so it wouldn't have screwed up things down the road. And those naturally would have filled up, uh, I believe, 30-something million dollars. Uh, and they've made two real moves to free up cap genuinely, and that's cut Kyle Van Noy and trade Shaq Mason away. Uh, so if they're not punting, not punting, but like if they're not, I think they're really trying to work with what they have without leveraging their future years away, which is a good thing to do, but, man, you've got to be ready to jump in those next three years because you've got to capitalize this last bit of a window of Belichick. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is if you're going to do all this with a young, promising coaching staff, it's one thing, but the coaching staff keeps shrinking and becoming diminished offseason after offseason, and, you know, every, every year is one less year that Bill has left in the tank, so... It's always the bird in the hand is good, and with the Pats, there's not much right now. There's Mac Jones, who we think can be good, but we, as of right now, he's kind of a mid-tier quarterback in the NFL. I think we have to admit that. There's talent in a few places that aren't all that, like there's depth, but not a ton of high-end talent. And you look at you know the defense, there's a lot of guys who are solid, but nobody who stands out as like a 
big turnover guy, a big sack guy, anything like that. You look at the offense, there's no high-flying weapons, just a bunch of guys we like. Deep running back room, no bell cow back, maybe Damian Harris, but I'm just I'm perplexed. I don't know exactly what the plan is for this Patriots team moving forward at all. I mean, we'll see. It's going to probably look like a lot more zone, a lot more, a lot more zone defense. Uh, I mean, that's what happens when you've got you know Jalen Mills and Terrence Mitchell uh, starting as your top two safeties. Uh, I think it's also going to look like a lot more. Uh, they're also you know they're changing other things too. Jakob Johnson apparently told uh, some. I believe it was the Deutsche News Channel that uh, that New England essentially told him that they would not have his position next year in the offense. They they and this is a team that has notoriously carried fullbacks for forever. So there's clearly going to be a new look to this offense, and they're picking up some tricky guys like Ty Montgomery, who's uh, you know dabbled at wide receiver and running back. They bring back James White, who's a consistent pass catching back. Uh, they're bringing Len- Leonard Fournette for meetings, too, so they're bringing in a lot of running backs, and it seems like there's going to be more versatility in the offense. I'm very curious to see what uh, Patriots offense, free of Josh McDaniels' influence, is going to look like. I'm very excited for it, honestly. <laughs> but I just wish they had better weapons to execute it at the moment. Yeah, I I just wish there was one receiver in the building who I felt like you could throw over the top to. But, hey, always always a chance. Always a chance that somebody wows us coming out of training camp. Always a chance that they draft somebody who doesn't end up being Nikhil Harry 2.0. We're just going to have to wait and see. Moving on to my first loser. It's the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, come on now. They went hard on the Deshaun train. And that's a hard thing to justify no matter what is to say, you know, we're throwing our entire weight behind going to get Deshaun. If you're the Browns, at least you've got Deshaun. Whereas these other teams, the Falcons, the Saints, the Panthers, lost out and were basically telling everyone in the building, like, this is what we're this is where we were putting all our chips. The good news for the Saints and Panthers is despite the message that sends, at least they didn't have a quarterback under contract at the time. The Falcons very much did, and that quarterback happened to be really the only good quarterback apart from those few years of Michael Vick that the franchise has ever had. If you had to go on a Mount Rushmore of Falcons players, Matt Ryan's the only slam dunk, to be honest. And now Matt Ryan's just completely alienated, not going to retire with the team, had to move on. Relationship was torn beyond repair. And if you look at what else they did, I mean, unfortunate situation with Calvin Ridley, but they have nothing. Like, they have no receivers. They don't have... Well, they, they bring in Marcus Mariota, so an obvious downgrade from Ryan. And... I mean, I mean, you you showed me this tweet, Kale, and we're gonna laugh at it now. But the the depth chart is just hysterical right now. Oh my! It's the having Cordero Patterson back in the fold is a big deal. I also like the fact that they were also able to pick up uh, Casey Hayward at a very reasonable two year contract. Uh, that being said, the offense is as uh, one Charles McDonald from Twitter at Four Verts puts it, irredeemably bad. It's a barren wasteland. Their quarterbacks pre-Marcus Mariota were uh, A.J. McCarron, Josh Rosen, and Felipe Franks. <laughs> uh, their running backs, Cordell Patterson and Mike Davis, also running behind a very, very poor offensive line. That should be noted. Their receiving core, uh, not from players not named Kyle Pitts, uh, Olamide Zacchaeus, Tajay Sharp, 
Frank Darby, and Christian Blake. And that's it. <laughs> that's bad. That's very, 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 very bad. That's <laughs> the worst receiving core I've ever heard of in, in football. my entire Currently. life. Yeah. Currently. If you if you didn't have and, and poor Kyle Pitts, by the way. I mean, we're you're gonna take that guy that early and then do absolutely nothing to help him. I mean, he's gonna put up he better be New Hopkins 2.0 in terms of putting up stats with no quarterback. I mean, he, this is tough. Listen, they really could have had Justin Fields or Mac Jones, and they decided to get cute and take uh, what people were calling a unicorn. Uh, and I don't know. Now, now we're now we're gonna see if he's a unicorn. Now Maybe they should play him at quarterback. Now he's a tight end, <laughs> like on a roster with Marcus Mariota throwing to him. Uh, I, I, Ian Rapport also described this as. Uh, I believe his exact quote was the best starting opportunity, Mar- uh, best starting opportunity Marcus Mariota could have asked for. Uh, this what sounds like hell. <laughs> this sounds like hell. <laughs> what other starting opportunities could he have asked for, though? I mean, and he might—he's right. Maybe Pittsburgh and maybe Seattle, but even in Seattle, he'd have Tyler Lock and DK Metcalf. Oh man, I mean, it does sound like hell, but. I don't think. I think the fact that Marcus Mariota is getting a starting opportunity, he should be thanking everything up above because that was not something. I don't think either of us anticipated that coming into this offseason. Considering the guys who are still available as trade targets and the fact that we still have, you know, quarterbacks available in the first, second round, I. Shocked is, is a word I would use to describe it. Yeah, that's bad. All right, well, let's swing back in the positive direction. Back to the winners. Let's hit me with one, Kale. What do you got? Moving back to the AFC East here. It's Buffalo. Buffalo Bills, man. They, they really came in this offseason with very few needs. Uh, we've already kind of talked about the fact that I think the Isaiah McKenzie move is an absolute home run. Uh, just the value they're able to get him at and what he's shown since Cole Beasley left, uh, or since Cole Beasley was cut, uh, fantastic option uh, and really cheap deal. I think that's going to be perfect. Uh, then you know it, there were a couple moves that were just quiet, like adding you know Tim Settle in the mix, who was someone who could never really get a window of major playing time while he was in Washington, but continuously developed every year. And now he's getting in on a really cheap two-year nine mil deal. And then they hit a home run. Then they just got Von Miller. Six-year, 120. It's effectively a three-year, $52 million deal. But, man, adding a pass rusher like that, he had a down season. And I think he still had, like, it was called a down season by many. And I think he still had a PFF grade of, like, 88. Like, nuts numbers he's still putting up as a, you know, almost 33-year-old at this point. Adding guys like Roger Saffold into the fold and, you know, maybe giving O.J. Howard a redeeming chance. That's all great. I mean, if he's your tight end, too, I think you're in a pretty good spot. Yeah. In an offense with insane depth of wide receiver. Yeah, behind Knox. Uh, insane depth might be a bit of a stretch, but I think, you know, I think they could still add one more. Who, like, And that's like the Tampa Bay point where it's, you know, you had Antonio Brown, Mike Evans, and Chris Godwin in the fold, and really no one underneath them outside of, like, Scotty Miller, you know, a couple rookies. Uh and nothing really developed as Chris Godwin got hurt and Antonio Brown quit the team. Uh, they really couldn't redeem anything. You recognize now that you need more depth at receiver than you ever had before. If you got your three guys, it's great. But I think you could get one more piece in the draft. You could do one more little thing there. 
But, you know, beyond that, I think they had an absolutely fantastic free agency, and they're doing exactly what they need to do to keep moving forward at this point. Well, look, here's what it all comes down to, is you know you have the guy. And Josh Allen this past postseason proved that he was the guy, not just a guy. So when you bring in, and that's that's so inspirational to other guys around the league, right? That's why you can bring in a Von Miller, is because Von Miller looks at your team and says, I can go there and win because they have the guy. So the receiving core is good enough in my eyes. I mean, we've known Diggs as a one for a long time. You're the biggest Gabe Davis stand on the planet. We both love Isaiah McKenzie as a third option. Sure, they could bring in someone else, but what it comes down to for me is I know that team is going to have a great offense this year. And now that you're bringing in more talent on the defense, I mean, you're going to get Trey White back. That's another one we, you know, should acknowledge. Potentially a top three corner in the league is going to come back and hopefully be healthy for the postseason next year. It's just all setting up really, really well for this team. I mean, even further down the roster, like Duke Johnson, like he could be a, a serviceable uh, second option of the running back position for them. Like they've they've just got a lot of pieces that I like. Yeah, I mean they're like it's an embarrassment of riches now. The fact that their quote unquote needs are depth picks. It's the fact that you know if they're adding a second, fourth receiver. <laughs> yeah, it's well second or third depending on how high you think they could end up achieving with Gabe Davis and Isaiah McKenzie. Isaiah McKenzie is gonna be a really fantastic slot ad, but. You know, it depends how it shakes out. And also I'm, the fact I'm looking at Gabe Davis as a two at this point. If you catch four touchdowns in a postseason game, I think you're a two. That's, Listen, that's my I'm view. The, I'm the one that's the Gabe Davis stand. Yeah. I, I just want to see what else they can, you know, how high they can reach here. But, yeah, their main needs are depth at receiver and uh, CB2, like a cornerback across from Trey White. And those are luxuries to have. Like, you've already got all your main pieces in place. But, you know, the thing that's going to make the difference between a good team and a championship-caliber team is those depth ends. All right. The Bills are added to our winner list, and I see them as as legit a title contender as there could possibly be. In fact, when we made our picks, that was my Super Bowl team this year. So I am completely prepared for that to happen. But I'm going to go back to my positive side, and let's go with not just the Bengals, but specifically Joe Burrow as a winner because we knew he had great depth at receiver. We knew he had, you know, all the youth on his side, a great division to be contending in for the foreseeable future. I guess it gets more complicated when Deshaun comes into the picture. But regardless, you made a Super Bowl run this year. We've known all along that the only thing plaguing Joe Burrow was his safety and the fact that his offensive line basically existed of cardboard cutouts and the Bengals were in this position where all they had to do with all their cap space this offseason was just go out and find guys to protect Joe Burrow happy to report that is what they have achieved they bring in Alex Kappa from Tampa Bay this is 27 year old guard great fit there four years 35 million it's not insanely pricey at that position then they bring in Ted Karras to play center from New England and they top it off bringing on Lyle Collins from uh, Dallas, that one, excuse me. So now they have three brand new toys at the offensive line position. I, I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, Joe Burrow's, he's protected now. Now you can go let him do his thing. All around winning situation. We knew it was going to be addressed. Obviously, the Bengals are in that insanely competitive AFC still, and they've got a long road in front of them to get back to the Super Bowl. But their biggest organizational need, we think at least mostly taken care of. 
Yeah, and I honestly, I think my favorite part about how they went about doing this is the fact that, listen, they could have gone out day one of free agency and said, all right, we're going to sign Toronto Armstead to a massive contract. and We're going to have our left tackle of the future in the fold, and we won't have to even worry about left tackle at all. But they still would have had a couple holes elsewhere, and they probably would have picked them up or filled those holes with, you know, couple day two picks in the draft or you know some week two week three free agent stuff but instead they end up going all right we're immediately signing Alex Kappa we're immediately signing Ted Karras like these second tier players to reasonable deals to shore up this offensive line because the offensive line is as good as your last link and improving the like you know I, I forget the terminology but improving the median instead of improving the top end talent is going to help this team way more in the future. And on top of that, this team's still got 23 million cap left to play with. Like this team's still got a lot of money left to work with. And, and if they've got to make any additional ads, whether it's, you know, maybe they got to pick up another tight end, maybe they got to pick up, you know, a couple additions on the defensive side of the ball, especially, you know, linebacker, or picking up a corner that is a new line apple. Uh, like, it's going to be per- Like, they're going to end up doing well, and I think they're in a really great position. But I just love, like, the specific strategy of how they approached rebuilding this offensive line. Instead of throwing massive contracts like the Kansas City Chiefs did at their line, they built it from the median instead of the top end. And I think that's going to pay dividends long-term, not only just for Joe Burrow, but for the Bengals' caps, or, you know, sort of purse strings as well. And you know what else the Bengals did that I love? Everyone on the planet named Michael Thomas is now back in the fold. Except for the main Michael Thomas, who is still a disgruntled wide receiver with the Saints. But they have a free safety named Michael Thomas and a wide receiver named Mike Thomas. And they locked both of them back in on one-year deals for about a million dollars each. So they are taking care of the nomenclature in Cincinnati. Savvy cat. <laughs> Moving on, back to the negatives. Kale, who is your final loser this afternoon? I'm, I'm, it's, there's not like an easy way to go about it. It's Dallas. It's the Dallas Cowboys. And I think it, it also speaks largely to the situation that's now unfolded in the NFL in the sense that the AFC is an arms race now. It's, you know, what? Buffalo, Kansas City, LA, Vegas, Denver. Cleveland, Cincinnati, Baltimore, Tennessee, and Indy. That's 10 teams that are going absolutely hog wild trying to get into the playoffs, like just letting loose on cap. The NFC, on the other hand, has got three good quarterbacks left. Matt Stafford with the Rams, Aaron Rodgers with the Packers, and Tom Brady with the Bucks. That fourth team is Dallas. That fourth team is just like they've got to make their chance. They basically, if they don't screw this up, have a bye to the divisional round. It's not even a problem. No matter where they end up getting seeded, not in the fantastic division, like they should be okay. But they've got to make some moves to jump those next three guys. The Packers have now fallen off a pretty significant amount by losing Devontae Adams. They've reloaded with some picks, but beyond that, you know, they're probably sitting in that free range. I still think Rodgers and what he can do in an offense is going to push them ahead, but you know, they've still got to worry about Tampa Bay and LA. The Cowboys instead have signed nobody. <laughs> They've signed Dante Fowler Jr. to a one-year deal. They've signed James Washington from Pittsburgh. 
They've re-signed Michael Gallup, which essentially they had to do because they had to cut Amari Cooper for cap reasons, and they lost Cedric Wilson to Miami. But they well, got, they traded Amari Cooper, to be fair. But, we'll but they had to get rid of him again. for cap reasons, yeah. is what I mean. Uh, they didn't come, you're right. Uh, but they lose out on Randy Gregory because they're starting to get too cute with some cap you know, loopholes in there. Uh, they lose Connor Williams to Miami as well. Uh, they have to cut Lyle Collins because of a lack of production, also the money he was owed. Uh, Leighton Vanderess is back in a one-year deal, but this team for, you know, trying to stay competitive at the top end of the NFC uh, has really not made too many moves to actually improve their odds here. I recognize the fact that Randy Gregory has not played a full season ever in a Dallas Cowboys uniform uh, between injuries and suspensions alike, but you still want to keep him in the building. You still want, you know, morale guys. Like, the whole strength of Dallas last year was their pass rush and their front seven. Like, I recognize, you know, Trey Diggs was making moves, you know, letting up a 1,000 yards and catching a million interceptions. But the whole threat of Dallas was their front seven. And I think they get a lot less formidable with Randy Gregory in the fold. They now need some additional supplements to this edge. Well, and the, the Randy Gregory thing in particular speaks to larger picture issues with the Cowboys more so than just losing a big talent on the defensive line because Randy Gregory leaves the team and immediately rips them for being, quote, a toxic fan base and says the ownership acted in bad faith and that's why he ended up having to sign with the Broncos instead. I mean, these are these are larger issues than just an X's and O's standpoint. This is Randy Greg. I mean, it's one guy's word, so we haven't heard from people otherwise in the organization to say that these toxic things are happening. And but to, push, to push back from, like, specifically the contract side and them getting manipulative, like... Apparently, the language in their contract about the fact that uh, they could fine Randy Gregory instead of suspend him for any disciplinary reasons so they could recoup on their cap. That's apparently language in all Dallas Cowboys contracts that they usually never enact on uh, for whatever reason. Uh, So, like, they were telling partially the truth, but they snuck it in at the last minute, and their agent was saying some stuff that... Seems suspect, but it ended up being true, and there was a bunch of half-truths going around that kind of soured things on both sides. But that doesn't excuse, you know, like, actual team culture and things like that, but it's just why the deal fell through. And I think it's, you know... But you got to make this guy... Ha- like, you got, it's it's the heart and soul of your defense. You know, it's not, like, the guy, but, you know, when your front seven's your whole selling point, and, you know, Michael Parsons great, but, like, you need the additional second and third rusher to actually be able to supplement that and be able to, you know, not just let Michael Parsons get double teamed every time. Completely agree. And I think the main point I'm trying to make is, you know, if this Randy Gregory thing happens in a vacuum, it's one thing, but, you know, Amari Cooper asking to be caught um, or traded and, and just the, I don't like the way they've been spending their money the last few off seasons. And we know we don't like what they have at the head coaching position. And it's just a, it's kind of a barrage of bad vibes around Dallas. You know, this is still a, a talented team for the most part, but there's a lot of cracks in the armor. And when you combine that with not having made a title game appearance since either of us have been born, things start to get a little dicey over there. My loser, the Seattle Seahawks. And this is not a difficult one. This is like I'm turning in my draft card five minutes early and there's no questions asked because... Out goes Russell Wilson. You cut Bobby Wagner, who is, aside from Russell Wilson, the most loyal 
uh, upstanding citizen you've had on your roster for the past 10 years. Not only do you cut him, by the way, uh, you cut him without telling him. Yeah, you just say bye. Um, you ghost. <laughs> you ghost Bobby Wagner. It's it's truly like 17-year-old Snapchat behavior. Um, but then when you just go into what the Seahawks have actually done otherwise, first off, DJ Reed, talented young safety, gone off the roster. That leaves them at the safety position with... Quandre Diggs, who they bring back in on a pretty steep deal, and Jamal Adams, who has already done a lot to tank the organization and is still costing them a first-round pick this year. They do get one back in that Denver trade, but you could have two, but instead you have Jamal Adams. And there's just so many positions of need, and they haven't really done anything else of note. They bring in Rashad Penny back uh, after having a pretty strong second half to this year. Great. He, Running backs don't really matter. It's and, it's not only that, but the fact that, like, do you think that's replicable enough to pay the guy one year $6 million? Probably not, especially because he's a running back, and if you don't have a good quarterback, he can replicate those exact same numbers, and they'll still lose all their games. So I don't really understand that. But then, you know, guys like Nwosu coming in from L.A., a guy we both liked this past year. Is he worth two years, $19 million? Also probably not. It's just, it, I, and they, they have depth at one position, receiver. Yeah, Everywhere else on the roster, there's no all, depth. Depth is also a stretch because it's literally just Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Well, those are two good guys, though. Yeah, but, like, there's no one else behind, like, Freddie Swain. Let's, like, let's do it. Swain up. Oh, my God. My, my biggest issue is the fact that the Russell Wilson deal would be the perfect tanking move if it didn't just cancel out the Jamal Adams deal. Uh, it, it's, it literally shakes out to be like a couple day two swaps and like the addition of a third and a fourth uh, in the grand scheme of things on top of players like Drew Locke, Jamal Adams, Shelby Harris, and Uh And even then, you know, you can't move forward with Drew Locke. Is your move now trade, ba- ba- trade for Baker Mayfield? Is your move... Tr- you know, pick up Malik Willis in the draft. It doesn't seem like you should go quarterback in the draft because you have so many other needs you need to address. Yeah, especially uh, when nobody's a slam dunk pick in this first round and you're picking at nine. So you're going to really not address all those other needs and take a big swing at the quarterback position? I don't think so. Doesn't really make a ton of sense to me. But, again, you know, the Seattle, like Seattle's just in a real, real bad spot, man. It's, it's from a... Like, their cap is fine, but, like, beyond that, it's they've really got nothing positive going for them. Wow. Well, sorry to just continue going after the Seattle Seahawks week after week, but uh, it's going to keep happening. <laughs> and they're going to start losing games once the season starts, and we're just going to continue to spiral downward and saying negative things about them. So, unfortunate as that may be, get used to it at this point. Yeah. And... I mean, what other honorable mentions do you have, Kale? Because there are a lot of winners here, and we don't have a ton of time to spend on them, but this has been a blistering week, and we certainly have others to add in there. Yeah, I'll throw two winners, two losers in there real quick. Uh, winner, Tampa Bay, uh, getting Tom Brady back in the fold allows them to, you know, pick up a bunch of new players, return a bunch of veterans, uh, and also, you know, like adding Russell Gage for depth is a really good move, and I think that's a good add. Uh, other winner, Jets. Uh, Jets, I'm not saying they're going to win the AFC, but they're doing the exact same strategy that Cincinnati did last year where they're just throwing bodies at the defense. They're picking up a lot of mid-level contracts for reasonable deals that seem like they're going to be good cultural fits, and they're bringing back the old guys that seem like they were good at like good fits already. 
I think that's just a really savvy move to make, and I think they're building a really good strategy here. Yeah, if only the Jets, or if only BYU had an unreal wide receiver who was going to be available at the top of the first round that Zach Wilson had an existing connection with in college, then we'd really be cooking in that Bengals vein. You know, maybe we got a Drake London there, Jameson Williams, who knows? It, It could shake out a lot of different ways. My two head scratching, or my two uh, two losers. Uh, one is Carolina. I really don't understand what Carolina is doing much at all. Uh, they've kind of just been in a holding pattern, uh, like without trying to get a quarterback at this point. It seems like they are the only candidate left for Jimmy Garoppolo to make a move. Uh, it which is hilarious. I don't think it should make any sense at all for him to end up going to Carolina just with where their skills at and what they could end up doing there. And I'd also call my second loser Chicago. Uh, Chicago just, for all the moves that they're doing with Justin Fields, like to, you know, work with year two of Justin Fields, uh, they really haven't, one, added a ton. Uh, two, it feels like they're really, you know, kind of, like, they're making a lot of weird lateral moves. Like, you know, like, Agronomia St. Brown, Byron Pringle to one-year deals to kind of just, like, fill stop gaps at receiver. Uh, like, they've added, you know, Justin Jones, a defensive tackle on, like, a decent deal. But then, I don't know, there, there are other just head, head-scratching head moves that they made, like, that I, I really just can't begin to wrap my head around that feel like, you know, like, overpays and just misfits. I It's... I don't really agree with a lot of the stuff that they're doing, but, I mean, hey, you know, I don't run the Chicago Bears. So I'm not <laughs> trying to start a rebuild. Is there a reason for that? We don't know. Somebody, Bears, give the guy a shot. Why not? Uh, I'll just add to your list really quickly. I've got the Chiefs as a winner. Uh, I think beyond, I mean, the juju pickup for them on a one-year prove-it deal is just perfect. We've <laughs> talked at length about how much they need uh, more depth, the wide receiver position. I mean, the fact that Byron Pringle signed for almost twice as much in Chicago as Juju did in Kansas City. I mean, talk about a head scratcher. That just blows my mind. Uh, and then another winner in this is content, of course, because Juju is now coming to the same city where Jackson Mahomes lives. And Jackson Mahomes has already posted an uh, Instagram story saying, it's time to collab, Juju. So... Or we're just waiting on that. I mean, that's a perfect match already. Uh, I don't want to spew too much more negativity, but while we're talking about uh, you know things that have been lost, I just wanted to say that uh, this week we lost a legend uh, in the NFL media landscape, and I'd be remiss if we didn't bring him up. Uh, John Clayton, one of the initial NFL insiders, a tremendous reporter for a number of years, been working in Seattle for a while now, still doing things with the Seahawks. Seahawks posted... A very touching tribute to him over the weekend on Twitter, as did many of his former ESPN colleagues. And I just didn't want to go on this podcast without acknowledging someone who uh, not only paved the way for people like us who were trying to get into NFL media, but just made coverage of the game better uh, for many years. Uh, rest in peace, John Clayton. Rest in peace. And, you know, not only a great reporter, but one of the most memorable. This is ESPN. Oh, commercials gosh, yeah. I mean, had, to, had to bring it up. Just yeah. brings a smile to my face every time I think about it. Mom, I'm done with my segment. <laughs> so good. Um, we had a couple head scratchers because that's, I mean, it's it's we haven't done it in a while because there hasn't been football for a while, but we've got some free agency head scratchers this week, Kale. Uh, why don't we talk about the Arizona Cardinals? What's going on over there? 
Not a lot, man. They, <laughs> not a lot at all. They are really in this no man's land of, all right, we're going to bring back Zach Ertz. We're going to bring back Max Williams to a surprisingly very big deal. We're also bringing back uh, James Conner, who uh, his success should tell you that you can sy- sign someone else. <laughs> no, that you, yes, exactly. That your system works and your system can produce this. So now you find the next James Conner instead of signing James Conner to a really big deal. And on top of that, you know they lose Chase Ed or they uh, yeah they lose Chase Edmonds to Miami. They lose Chandler Jones to Vegas. They lose Christian Kirk to Jacksonville. And they're kind of just in like it's my exact logic with the Cowboys, where this is a conference that is ripe for the taking and is the perfect opportunity to do so. Without doing much, there's a chance that the Arizona Cardinals could end up the fifth seed in this conference and even compete with LA for for a shot of the NFC West. But you gotta make moves to do that, you know? Like you gotta actually do some things and like make some moves. The only reason I put them in head scratcher category instead of outright loser category is the fact that they did make those pickups because Zach Ertz was really good down the stretch, because James Connors a, a talent, I suppose, but Outside of that, man, like I don't really get the direction going on here. Yeah, and it's more of a head scratcher than a loser situation because it's not like there's a ton that they've. I mean, granted, they have lost guys like Christian Kirk's gone, Chandler Jones is gone, um, AJ Green's still in the open market. Yeah, right. and and they lose uh, Chase Edmonds as well. I mean, we talked about how the running back system works, so not as much of a concern. But it's a head scratcher in that we still feel like there are moves to be made, and we're wondering why the moves a maybe haven't been made yet or be what those moves really even are when it seems like they're, you know, taking a step back from being contenders and either unloading or allowing their more talented guys to walk. And this is a team that we know was close this year, that we know has young talent who's only going to get more expensive at the quarterback position. So what are we doing here? Like, what's what's the play? And I don't think we have a sense on what the play is based on how they've started this offseason. I, I mean, speaking of teams with... No idea what their players. <laughs> let's go and let's get into it. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, head scratcher <sighs> of all head scratchers, right now. We prefaced this when we talked about last week uh, their franchise tag on Cam Robinson. Probably cheaper options out there at the left tackle position. Not a great left tackle to begin with. Then they bring in. Yeah, I don't even think it precludes them from getting other tackles because he's so mediocre. Yeah, go for it. Like, load up on tackles. But then they decided that they were just going to throw all the money at the wide receivers this offseason. And it's funny because I I can't remember who tweeted this, but it looks like all the guys who you're trying to pick up on Fantasy Waiver Wire Week (laughs) 8, that's who the Jaguars threw hundreds of millions of dollars at this week. Christian Kirk, four years, $72 million. Zay Jones, three years, $24 million. Um, they bring in Evan Ingram at the tight end position, one year, $9 million. Uh, it's just, didn't they bring in more receivers? No, they had Marvin Jones from last year, who's also an insane contract that was overvalued. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just in that fold of the fact that, you know, I think combined they've spent, you know, $125 million on this receiving core that is pretty mediocre. Yeah. Like, it's bad. My issue is this team has, and, and like, this team has no direction. Like, 
first off, Christian Kirk and Zay Jones are both slot receivers. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Like, you, you can't we'll have take two of them at the same spot. Uh, <laughs> and some of the other defense, like, you know, is DJ Chark on a one-year $10 million deal better than Zay Jones on a three twenty-four? Like, Maybe. probably. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then also, like, some of their defensive moves have been head-scratching as well. Like, I get picking up for you, say, the Aloha-Kun for a pretty hefty freaking contract. But, like, think about the rationale of them picking up Darius Williams at cornerback. Someone asked him about what uh, the GM saw in Darius Williams uh, to sign him to a three-year, $30 million deal. And his response was basically like, do you see how he could guard uh, Christian Kirk in the uh, playoffs? It's like you can't use literally any other comparison. Use literally any other guy to defend him because like now you're just like now you're just using circular logic and nothing nothing matters anymore. Like these the you know I like it, it, it's why I like a team like Detroit, who last year spent a lot on guys, but you could at least, like made a lot of moves and you knew they were gonna be bad, but from a roster standpoint, but you recognize like hey. These are all players that fit into a specific system and work in specific ways so we can actually field a team in three, four years and we're building a full... Like, Dan Campbell setting out with a plan. And currently, Jacksonville Jaguars don't look like they have any sort of plan, either offensively or defensively. And it really makes absolutely no sense to me what they're doing. Well, Especially, you know, who, who can you use on a defense... Uh on a defense where you have cap space and you know you need guys with great talent, maybe someone like a Miles Jack, for example, who the Jaguars cut this week. They just straight cut him. They let him. Okay, now he's going to Pittsburgh for two years. Eight uh, is it eighteen million? Sixteen million. So eight million dollars a year. What was all this when they were throwing all this money at Aluakun and uh, Darius Williams? I mean, why is Miles Jack no longer in the picture? It makes absolutely no sense. Foley fought to Kasi too, 330. Like, listen, and I recognize the fact that you probably have to pay a premium to get guys to come to Jacksonville. It's a pretty disastrous front office. It's not the best place to live. It's not an ideal free agency target, you know. Even Tampa is better than Jacksonville. But But Miles Jack was already there. <laughs> I'm I'm saying in general. Like yeah, yeah, I get right. that. I get that you got you have to pay a premium to get these guys in the building. But, I mean, yeah, like when you have guys like Miles Jack, the only guy left over from that insane Jacksonville defense that was a homegrown guy, or the fact that, you know, like, like these are all overpays that no fit in any system. And I also like, you know, Brandon Scherf pick, whatever, but, like, even that, like, you know, three close to 50 Massive mil. overpay for a 30-year-old. Unreal. Yeah. Builds, this is a perfect scenario that we can have to protect Trevor Lawrence's you know, trot out Cam Cam Robinson and Brandon Scherf and make it all work. Well, one guy I don't think we expected to be still talking about when it comes to the Jacksonville Jaguars is Urban Meyer. Because we thought he was out of sight, out of mind. But we have to keep bringing him up because another insane Urban Meyer article dropped this week. And I think the biggest takeaway from this Urban Meyer article, which was in The Athletic, it's Great journalism all around. Uh, Urban Meyer should feel very fortunate that we had Bozo of the Year voting a few weeks ago because he was nominated 
And I think we were all a little bit surprised that we had kind of moved on from him and didn't vote for him in the process. But when this article dropped, I think we were both clutching our faces going, how do we miss this guy as Bozo of the Year? Some of the stuff in there, absolutely insane. Because you look at the headlines and it's all about, Urban Meyer didn't know who Aaron Donald was. Okay, bad. But then you read through the article and you discover that Urban Meyer was also just patently, blatantly racist to his players during practices. Like, what the heck is this article? Like, it's so much worse than we ever imagined, and we knew how bad it was. I mean, literally, here's the lead to the article. First three paragraphs. Urban Meyer burst into a room full of players at the Jaguars facility. He was furious. One of his players had missed an assignment during a preseason game, leading to a busted play. Meyer was enraged when it happened. A day later, he was still fuming. If the mistake ever happened again, Meyer warned, he would cut every single one of them. Quote, and do you know what would happen if I cut you guys? Meyer said, according to four people in the room, you couldn't get a job paying more than $15 an hour. And it's like, if players go, like, I immediately lost all respect for him. It's the article's titled, quote, the most toxic environment I've ever been a part of. It's, and the guy described it as by far, not even close. Uh, it just... There's a scenario where he was talking about John Brown being in practice and saying, Trevor, you got to slow it down for him because, quote, these boys from the South, their transcripts ain't right. Like, this is, like, it's not even a gray area. Like, this is very, very sketchy stuff to be saying during an NFL practice. I mean, bar none, the worst head coaching hire in the history of football without pretty, like, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean... Meyer, can, Meyer said he conducted a six-month deep dive on the NFL that included interviews of his former, former Florida and Ohio State players, as well as a study of the salary cap. But multiple sources said Meyer was unfamiliar with star players around the league, including 49ers receiver Debo Samuel, Seahawks safety Jamal Adams, and Rams defensive tackle Aaron Donald. Who's this guy in 99 on the Rams? Meyer asked one staffer during the season. I hear he might be a problem for us. Oh, my God. Like, he is, what, the most recognizable defender in all of football, right? I mean, so what's you, Urban been doing for all these years that he's been, you know, sending guys to the NFL and then working for Fox Sports as a football analyst? And maybe these are questions you want to be asking during the hiring process if you're thinking about bringing this guy into lead your NFL team. Not just a football team. It's an NFL team you're running here. I mean, maybe not from a skills position, but if if it's just like, if you're just playing, you know, guess who with <laughs> NFL players uh, as your head coaching uh, hiring process, a 12-year-old that casually follows the league would have a better NFL IQ than a former Jacksonville Jaguars head coach. That's tough. That's not great. It's really, really tough. Um, I, we didn't have anywhere else to put that in the show, but we had to talk about it. Had to get slipped in. Had to talk about it. You know we had to do article. a Tuesday morning reading on Urban Meyer somehow. Unbelievable stuff. Um, I think that's pretty much it for us this week. Another, I mean, again, free agency was crazy. You want to talk about Jameis real quick? This is your guy. Let's, let's, get, let's finish on a Jameis note. Okay, all I'm saying is the guy finished number two in football in EPA per play when you account for the fact that he played, you know, it, when you said it's a minimum 200 plays. So it's, you know, you got to make some caveats in there. You got to do some stuff. But he's, I'm so glad that he's gotten this chance again. Just 
the fact that he's able to get back in two years, and I get, again, this is another circumstance where a team should not be totally celebrated because the Saints were heavily vetting for Deshaun Watson, and any team that ends up vying for him should probably feel a little bit of shame and shouldn't be rooted for as hard, but at least they didn't get him. So they give James another shot. Hopefully he's fully healed by then. And he was able to lead the Saints to 5-2 and two in seven games while throwing to no one. If the Saints end up making moves for another receiver, they get Michael Thomas back in the fold, they need another running back to supplement Alvin Kamara's carries because he played a lot better when he wasn't also a bell cow back. you got a couple more moves to make. I get losing Sean Payton's bad, but, you know, if you got a system in place, I, I'm the sky's the limit for Jameis, baby. It, the Saints are probably a sneaky, not even sneaky. Like, Saints, even with their roster, are probably, like, the sixth or seventh best team in the NFC right now. Like, it, it, really, whatever way you map it out, it's going to be, a, it's, the wild, the wild card's going to be wide open here. It's not a dogfight like in the AFC where, you know, teams nine through 12 would be, like, contenders for divisions in the NFC. Like, it's going to be pretty open, and, like, it's going to be the Cardinals sneaking in, maybe the Eagles, the Saints will be right in there, man. Like, I'm really I'm pumped to see what they can put together with a full year of Jameis. Yeah, what's interesting is that a lot of the teams that were pretty firmly established in the NFC playoffs last year are some of the teams we're more concerned about. You think Cowboys, Cardinals, even Packers trading away Devontae, and some of the teams that were either at the bottom end of the playoffs, had to fight their way in, or just barely missed out, are now the teams that we're getting a little bit more excited about. Whereas in the AFC, everyone's just reloading, everyone looks better, etc. But the NFC is in this weird position where the top of the pack is kind of coming back to the middle, and the middle of the pack is starting to bump up a little bit. And we just don't really know what to expect. I think if Tom Brady didn't come back, too, I mean, then we'd really have no clue what was going to happen in this conference this upcoming year. So... Just going to be a really interesting year to follow the NFC. Jameis, it's a little bit ironic that we bring up uh, Browns fans rooting for guys with uh, checkered pasts, and Jameis is another guy who certainly has a checkered past. But at the very minimum, it all looks to be resolved. Jameis is a guy who at least is not actively undergoing legal processes, but just wanted us to acknowledge that he is also a guy with a checkered past from that perspective. yes. Okay, that's the end of our show. Listen, if, if <laughs> I, after a full breakdown of this, if we look back at our Super Bowl picks, I'm pumped that we kind of got one each potentially right. Or like we like two weeks into this, we still look good. Like I said, LA would repeat. They still very well might because it's like they're the only team that looks like they've reloaded and not readjusted. Like. Getting Allen Robinson in the fold, you know, making a couple other pickups here and there. I think they're in a decent spot to repeat, and everyone else around them is kind of getting weaker. Bills, I think, are pretty definitively the team to beat uh, in the AFC right now, outside of maybe Kansas City, who, if you know, looks shakier than ever in terms of the fact that their defense is in a weird spot. Uh, Patrick Mahomes is coming off an interesting season, or the only quote down season he's had where he was still the top five quarterback in football. 
But now the conference has gotten a lot tougher, so who knows how it shakes out. But, you know, right now, I think we're sitting pretty on, like, where we've evaluated this league so far. You know what? I'd like to give a big congrats to us and us alone. Quick, quick pats <laughs> on the back all around. Uh, a thank you once again to our sponsors this week, uh, Blake Bortles Bottle Openers. Thank you very much for sponsoring the show. And also thank you to whatever brand makes Kale's hot pink golf pants that he's wearing in studio today. I think they're Nike. Are they? are they either uh, Nike or uh, Ralph Lauren RX? All right. Like LRX. Well, I wish you all could see them because I've been staring at them for two hours now, moving from place to place, and they are like hot pink doesn't even begin to describe them. I mean, this man is pinker than a flamingo right now, and he looks fantastic doing it. Listen, when you decide you don't want to unpack your suitcase, you got limited options for pants. <laughs> All right. (laughs) And on that note, we come to a close. Thank you all again for listening. Don't forget to do all the good stuff. Rate, comment, subscribe, like, etc. That's Kale. He's Kale Clinton. I am. That's Jack Jack Uh, Roberts. And we will see you next Tuesday.